WNYV, Whitehall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Monday, February 19th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. All this week, we're going to dive into the North Country's complicated history for black residents. Today, some researchers and scholars are looking into that history and working to make the region a more welcoming place. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now. A new proposal from the state's redistricting commission makes slight changes to the areas currently represented by Congresswomen Elise Stefanik and Claudia Tenney. Also, our book reviewer Betsy Capis, along with our Todd Moe, shared their thoughts of the 2023 National Book Award finalist Gather. It's set in rural Vermont and tells the story of a teen trying to hold on to the family home while his mom is in recovery. It hit home for me. Because I went to the Canton Central School where there were a lot of kids like the main character in Gather, Ian. Bright and energetic, but from households where there's very little money and very little opportunity. All of that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Adirondack Experience, the museum on Blue Mountain Lake, presenting their Adirondack Avian Walk on Saturday, February 24th in Long Lake. Learn more at theadkx.org. And by Apothecary Chocolates, making gourmet chocolates by hand from all natural herbs, botanicals, and tree syrups, apothecarychocolates.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Voters in the Champlain Valley rejected a proposal last week to build a new $66 million school. It would have taken students out of Westport and Elizabethtown and moved them into the new school five to ten miles north to Lewis. All three towns merged into one school district years ago, though they've remained split between two separate schools. Seventy-three percent of voters rejected the new school proposal. The district described the vote on Facebook as disappointing. The committee will now consider alternative options, including renovating the school in Elizabethtown to be able to house all pre-K through 12th grade students. There's a new draft set of congressional maps for New York. The state's Independent Redistricting Commission released the new lines last week. If the proposed maps are approved, the North Country's districts won't change that much. Kara Chapman has more. According to the Associated Press, the proposed new congressional maps make modest changes to three competitive districts in central New York and the Hudson Valley, but they don't substantially change the state's other 23 districts, including those in the North Country. Charles Nesbitt is the Redistricting Commission's Republican vice chair. He says the new map is a good compromise between the two major parties. Despite whatever either one of us might think of the shortcomings of the map individually, it's a wonderful result for the people of the state of New York. Under the proposed maps, New York's 21st Congressional District, represented by Republican Elise Stefanik, would likely remain a GOP stronghold. It would keep the vast majority of the North Country, with some changes around the fringes. For example, the villages of Alexandria Bay and Theresa and Jefferson County would move to the 24th District. That's the seat held by Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney, who currently represents other parts of the Thousand Islands and Watertown. 
NY21 would gain parts of Oneida and Saratoga counties, though not the village of Schuylerville where Stefanik lives. The district would lose all of Schoharie County and its portion of Otsego County. It would also lose parts of Montgomery and Rensselaer counties, including East Greenbush, where Stefanik runs a constituent services office. Multiple candidates have emerged against Stefanik. There's Republican Jill Lochner, Democrats Paula Collins and Steve Holden, and Working Families candidate Brian Rouleau. Candidates in New York State can start gathering petitions for primaries on February 27th. It's unclear when the legislature will vote on the new lines. If it votes them down, the Democratic majorities would redraw them, potentially setting up another Republican-led lawsuit. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. The North Country's dairy industry is encouraged by the opening of two new processing plants in western New York. The new milk bottling and cheese plants are slated to open within the next 18 months near Buffalo and Rochester. Jefferson County's agricultural coordinator told WWNY-TV that the plant's location closer to the North Country will reduce milk shipping costs and help stabilize the market. It will also mean more milk is getting used in central and western New York, making the North Country milk more valuable. St. Lawrence, Jefferson, and Lewis counties produce about 2 billion pounds of milk each year. The state announced about $170 million in water infrastructure grants last Friday for projects around the state. The projects improve water quality or habitat, enhance flood resiliency, and protect a water drinking source. North Country projects include Watertown, Clayton, Dexter, Ticonderoga, Peru, Speculator, and Chesterfield. Two of the biggest awards include $4 million for the Thousand Islands Land Trust to purchase a large conservation easement protecting the water quality of Lake Ontario and $3.5 million for the Lake George Land Conservancy to buy and preserve over 700 acres in the Indian Brook subwatershed. A Harrisville ice derby scheduled for this past weekend was called off. The derby was planned to take place on Lake Bonaparte with proceeds benefiting the Harrisville Fire Department, but the ice wasn't thick enough to hold the expected 900 people due to a series of thaws and unseasonably warm temperatures. This follows the cancellation of a popular Tupper Lake ice fishing derby in early February, normally one of the largest in the state. While there was no ice on Lake Bonaparte, the Harrisville Fire Department still held their luck of the draw raffle, giving away cash prizes and a four-wheeler. It's one of the department's main fundraisers each year. Last week, at least 10 churches in Glens Falls were the targets of a texting scam. As reported by the Glens Falls Post-Star, parishioners received a personalized text signed by the name of their pastor. The text said the religious leader had a favor to ask and were often uh, and were often followed up by a request for gift cards for congregants that needed help. For some churches, it was the first time they'd been the target of such a scam. Others had experienced similar incidents in the past. The Federal Trade Commission reported that in 2023, $330 million were made off of texting scams. One pastor said that any digital request for money from a religious leader is a red flag. In Glens Falls, there's been just one report of the text scam succeeding. Last winter, 18 families at Beaver River Central School in Lewis County needed free winter clothing for their kids. This winter, that number jumped to 31 families, according to district officials. Lucy Grindon has more on the increased need. Winters in the North Country are long and hard, and some families can't afford to buy their kids everything they need to stay warm. At Beaver River Central School near Lowville, the teachers look for any kids who might be in need of clothing items. Hats, gloves, mittens, to boots, snow pants, jackets. Todd Green is the district superintendent. 
He says teachers keep an eye on their students, especially when it's cold. Too often, they see jackets that don't fit and clothes that look worse for wear. The Dyson Foundation and the Northern New York Community Foundation give the school district thousands of dollars a year for winter clothes for students. They've done so for over a decade, and they do the same for the public schools in Lowville. Last winter, 18 families at Beaver River needed the free winter items. But this winter, that number jumped to 31 families. On the national scale, the child poverty rate doubled from 2022 to 2023. It's even higher in New York State, at 18%. It's the same in Lewis County, almost one in five kids. Green, the superintendent, says class sizes are pretty small at Beaver River. The teachers know a lot of the parents, and they might be aware of who's having a hard time. They probably even know that maybe a parent lost a job. Teachers let the school know if families are having financial struggles. Then they might have, uh, you know, say, hey, maybe this family needs some help. Experts say the national increase in child poverty is partly due to the end of the pandemic-era expanded child tax credit, which added hundreds of dollars to lots of families' monthly budgets. Lucy Grinden, North Country Public Radio. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 810. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, Vermont writer Kenneth Caddo's debut novel portrays a challenging coming of age story set in rural Vermont with warmth, humor, and insight. Our review is coming up. Music featuring Peggy Lynn and Dan Duggan. Northern Light is supported by the Village Mercantile in Saranac Lake, established in 2011 with the mission of community-fueled solutions with products for home, camp, and gift-giving. VillageMerc.com, anything but general. The North Country's history and relationship with black people and culture is a complicated one. This region has a dark past of Ku Klux Klan activity, which we'll hear about in tomorrow's show. There's an ongoing battle with racism here in an area that's about 95% white. Meanwhile, thousands of locals work in state prisons around the North Country, which largely incarcerate black and brown men. We're going to be diving into black history in the North Country all this week on Northern Light, listening back to stories we've reported over the last year. 
In the Adirondacks, some scholars and local leaders have been digging deeper into that history and working to make the region a more welcoming and diverse place today. Emily Russell has the story, which first aired last June. For most of America's history as a nation, black people have either been enslaved or oppressed. By the 19th century, slavery was abolished in the North, but there were still white Northerners who owned slaves, and all freed black people lacked basic human rights. Even in the North, many black people experienced severe discrimination. In the 1840s, a man named Garrett Smith set out to change that. He owned 120,000 acres of land in the Adirondacks. By giving away parcels of that land to black American men, those men could then gain the right to vote. Paul Smith's professor, Kurt Steger, has been researching black history in the Adirondacks. He recently presented some of those findings to the Adirondack Park Agency. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now as well. But it was uh, much more ambitious back then. That ambitious settlement became known as Timbuktu. Steger has been plotting where exactly those black settlements were in the Adirondacks. He showed the APA maps of those plots around the region. At least half of North Elba and much of St. Armand was black owned in the 1850s. There's the town of Franklin with Vermontville and uh, Bloomingdale just below it and all the way up to Loon Lake and beyond up into Belmont. So it was huge. About half of this landscape was black owned. Life in the Adirondacks was not easy back then, especially for black people. Many eventually moved out of the area, but some stayed and raised their families in the Adirondacks. There are descendants of that Timbuktu settlement still in the region today. Another aspect of Steger's research has focused on place names. He explained to the APA about learning of an offensive name of a brook just north of Saranac Lake. Years ago, I was in Anchiota. The Red Star shows uh, the Paul Smith College property. And I was talking to a friend who said, oh, that little brook right there, that's called N-Word Brook. I thought, wow, that's you know, not only offensive, but mysterious. How could that happen in a place like this? Steger believes the brook was named for the skin color of a dozen or so black families that lived in the area. So he and some other folks worked to change that name. They got support from students, faculty, and staff at Paul Smith College, as well as the Vermontville Town Council and county officials. They wrote to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names and were successfully granted permission to change the name to John Thomas Brook. Thomas was one of the first settlers of Timbuktu. He later sold his original plot of land, but moved back to the Vermontville area with his family. Thomas bought 150 acres of land where he grew vegetables and raised cows and sheep. John Thomas spent the rest of his days in Vermontville, and he's buried in Union Cemetery, that quiet little cemetery you drive past on Route 3 heading for Plattsburgh, zipping past, not even thinking about it. He's right in there, and so is his wife. The work to educate the public and celebrate the legacy of black settlers and abolitionists in the Adirondacks is ongoing. Martha Swan also spoke at the recent APA meeting. Swan is the founder and executive director of John Brown Lives, a project named after the legendary white abolitionists who owned a farm near Lake Placid. Through this work that others have done and that we've done together, I have begun to believe in the unifying potential of our history, the unifying potential of rolling up our sleeves, digging deep into the horrors, the terrors, the tragedies, the violence, the crime of so much of our history. 
Swan helped organize the Juneteenth celebration at the John Brown Farm. Then in August, the farm is planning to host a long table dinner in discussion with leading scholars such as Nell Painter. The event is an effort to bring together diverse people and perspectives to talk about the history and the future of the Adirondack Park. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio. That story first reported in June of last year. On tomorrow's show, we'll hear about the history of KKK activity in the 1920s and 30s when the group terrorized people in St. Lawrence County and drove out most of the area's black population over a decade. You can keep up with news and stories and conversations from NCPR throughout the day at our website, ncpr.org, or you can follow the station on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You're listening to Northern Lights right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, a Vermont teen and his dog tackle the challenges of youth and discover the value of a community in a new novel. And we've got a review. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note just ahead at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather. We're seeing blue sky and sunshine right now here in Canton. That's pretty much the story for most of the North Country uh, this morning, or it will be later today. There's still some patches of light snow showers, highs this afternoon in the upper teens, low 20s. Lows tonight back down into the single digits, so partly cloudy and cold overnight again tonight. Then tomorrow... And again on Wednesday, the Weather Service predicting mostly sunny skies for much of the region. Highs low 30s on Tuesday and highs low 40s on Wednesday. Then a chance of a wintry mix Thursday and Friday with highs in the 30s near 40. Right now in Canton, sunshine and six above. Vermont writer and high school principal Kenneth Caddow was a National Book Award finalist for his young adult novel, Gather. In 2023, Betsy Cabus and I talked about the book told in the engaging voice of Ian, a poor teen in rural Vermont. Hey, Betsy. Hey, Todd. I always read some of the National Book Award finalists because, you know, they're the best books in the country, supposedly, of the year. And I was really excited to discover a Vermont writer as a finalist on the Literature for Young People list. His book is called Gather, we just said, and it is really, really good. It hit home for me because I went to the Canton Central School where there were a lot of kids like the main character in Gather, Ian. Bright and energetic, but from households where there's very little money and very little opportunity. And so Ian is this great kid. He's 15. His grandfather has told him how to fix. He can fix anything, right? That's his amazing skill. Gramps. And it's a dramatic beginning. Um, Ian comes to the rundown house where he's been living with his young mother who had him when she was in high school. The father's disappeared shortly after. The grandfather has died. The grandmother now lives, lives down south. He goes home and his mother is gone and he sees a needle um, on the table and he knows that she's been using opioids. So, But he doesn't want to ask for any help. As he says, 
when he goes to school, he goes, you can't tell people what's going on because then they want to do something. And he has a lot of pride and he's not going to ask for help. One of the things that I appreciated about uh, Kenneth Caddo's writing is that first person, what do you call it? First person rural, first he calls person it. First person rural, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just love that vernacular. And I want to share uh, just an excerpt from the book that they're talking about food, and he's at a friend's house where they're hauling in bags of groceries from the store. And, you know, I think one of the things they're talking about is He's never seen a spiral ham, and he's kind of imagining <laughs> right. like, what That's a spiral right. ham looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, so this is Ian, the, the the main character. I still don't understand why vegetarians need to pretend to be eating meat. It seems reasonable. If you don't want to eat meat, you come up with your own names for whatever the hell you end up with. Like they did for tofu, which I've got no problem with. It's just when our food and consumer science teacher put it on our plate in eighth or ninth grade, I got a little worried and I poked at it with a fork before I ate it, but I ate it. And then Drew and I were like, can we bring in venison for everyone to try too? And the teacher, she's like, no. It's like, I'm not as pig-headed about food like that teacher is. When Paul, who happens to be Zach's cousin, was complaining about how oat milk should have to go by some other name because it's sneaky and trying to come off as a dairy product. I was like, well, Paul, what are we going to call the milkweed plant then? Cloud juice plant? What do we call the Milky Way galaxy? Fuzz galaxy? Out of focus galaxy? That's different, he says. So, And I don't know if you noticed, but that, that one paragraph is like one long sentence. sentence you know? yeah, yeah. He, so he really knows teen boys. I mean, he's yeah. worked in schools for 20 years and so sort of as another one um the antithesis of that right there's a awful scene where the principal gets into the office because another boy a rich kid accuses him ian of stealing his plaid shirt his flannel shirt and there's a awful scene in the because ian has not he got it at the thrift store so as he bursts out of the um with no shirt on, and yeah. elementary yeah. stomps out of the school, swearing his head off. And as he's walking up the road, um, his neighbor stops and says, "What's going on?" And this is what Ian says: "How do you tell somebody what's going on when it's everything, going back one hundred years, maybe longer, that all your life, even when you're telling the truth, somebody can prove you're lying?" Mm-hmm. And that sort of is a reference to his grandfather had to sell off the family farm, had to sell off the cows, and Ian has this sort of fantasy that he's going to get it back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's sort of one of the poignant things of this book, because will that ever happen? Yeah. You know? Yeah. The tax bill uh, comes and all this Oh, the tax bill causes yeah, another yeah. horrible disaster, yeah, you yeah. know? So I want to say, we're, ta- we're talking about all the sad things in this book, but it has a lot of humor. It also has some wonderful, in the middle, everything's kind of going okay for a while, uh, Ian and his mom and his Aunt Terry are having Thanksgiving dinner out back on the sort of broken down porch because they're using right. a grill because like, yeah. the oven broke and they have a Labatt six pack. And, uh, you know, there's these hunting camp scenes, which are wonderful. And he even has a girlfriend at one point. So it's it's this lovely view of and you think he's going to make it. He's going to make it. And of course, there's another crisis, yeah. Yeah. you know, <laughs> and um we should probably talk about Gather, the title, yes, yes, and yes. Gather, the dog. Yes. I mean, this he, stray dog wa- literally wanders into his life. right? And he yeah. thinks he's going to call him Hunter, which is a nice name for a dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he yeah. realizes the dog has been surviving by eating, like, apples and nuts from the, you know, beech nuts. 
And so then he decides to call the dog Gather, um, which is the title. And also, of course, what happens, and this is why it's such a heartwarming book, too. Everyone does try to help Ian. You know, they, the people at school, his neighbors, he and his mom get a little job at this little cafe run by an old lady called Angel, (laughs) of course, right? And, you know, that's in the part of the book when you realize, come on, Ian, you can do it, you can do it. Then, when everything falls apart again, I'm not going to say how it happens, yeah. but Ian is in Tennessee surviving in this sort of rural wildlife swamp with the dog. Mm-hmm. He's escaped from what he considers a fate worse than death. Right. So he's on the run. <laughs> he's yeah. on the run. Yeah. Um, but he eventually... Oh, this I love this. We have to mention that Ian can fix anything. I think yeah. I said yeah. that. But he has never had a cell phone. He doesn't know how to use a cell phone, and he sort of forgets that it needs to be charged. And this sort of becomes a plot point at the end of the book there. But he finally gets back with his community, and I think this is the thing to remember. The title of the book is Gather and um, Gathering Together. I think everyone in the North Country should read this book. We've all met kids like Ian. Really, what this book is about is is about community. Yeah, and also I think a certain youthful tenacity or something. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. Ian... Ian is a strong character. Very strong guy. Yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes that says something. Uh, you can you can say, yeah, I, I knew people like that or I know people like that. And they do survive. And mm-hmm. they do make it. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. But, you know, it's a lot of... You, the stuff this kid has to go through, yeah. a lot of kids would not have yeah. survived yeah. it. Literally, there's no food in his house. Yeah. Um, a packet of crackers in his pocket you or know, something. Yeah. yeah. And, or uh, beech nuts that he's breaking. Yeah. And the whole house is falling down and, yeah. you know... But um, really amazing read, and I recommend it to everybody. It's not a long book. It's easy to read. It's Yeah, yeah. it's easy. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful book. Yeah. Thanks, Betsy. Thank you, Todd. Our book reviewer, Betsy Capus, lives, reads, and writes in Colton and Kenneth Caddow's book, Gather, a young adult novel, was a National Book Award finalist last year. It was published last October. And you'll find more information on our website. Again, Gather by Kenneth Caddow, published by Penguin Random House. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. Time is 826.
Georgia drum beats, and that was Dom Flemons, one of my favorite artists. He is a music scholar, actor, slam poet, record collector, a program host. He plays the banjo, the guitar, the harmonica, the jug, the percussion, rhythm bones, and uh, great music with Dom Flemons. Yeah. And uh, that is Northern Light for this Monday, uh, February 19th. Yes, too true. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Coming up in about 15 minutes on the program after last year's NBA All-Star Game hit a ratings low, the league went back to its classic format. We'll explore if it paid off coming up in about 15 minutes here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandresky. I'm Todd Moe. Thank you for listening and be well.